Mercy Talk is brought to you by Mercy Multiplied. We exist to encourage, equip, and empower both men and women with the same biblically-based principles we've seen work for over 35 years in our residential homes. If you want to find out more, head on over to mercymultiplied.com. back to Mercy Talk. I am one of your hosts, Melanie Wise. I'm the Senior Director of Outreach here at Mercy. I am Dr. Brooke Keels, the Senior Director of Counseling and Program Strategy here at Mercy Multiplied. Not sure when I have last been this excited to introduce a special guest here on Mercy Talk. We are thrilled beyond thrilled and Brooke and I might possibly be fangirling just a little bit over here um, over the guests that we have joining us today. Um, Dr. Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist, speaker, author based out of uh, Washington, D.C., and he is truly one of our favorites. What, somebody who I just believe, as we were even talking before we started recording, is just so like-minded, like-spirited, um, and truly does an incredible job of weaving together this understanding of, of science and neurobiology but also from a Christian faith perspective and truly helps educate and encourage people to really seek to fulfill that desire that we all have, that intrinsic desire that we all have to be known and valued and connected. And he's got workshops, speaking engagements, books, consulting, a private practice, all kinds of different platforms where he is able to share just really fresh and incredible insights um, but something that we love is the practical application that he always brings to the table um, that you can really actually put to work in your life for developing um, authentic relationships, fully experiencing our deepest longing, which, as he says, and I could not agree more, is to be known. Needless to say, Kurt, we are so, so, so excited to have you on today and just cannot wait to get this conversation started. <laughs> well, Melanie and Brooke, it's uh, a delight it's humbling to be invited to join you all. Um, as we were saying, talking about this before we started the recording, I'm um, uh, just so thrilled to be speaking with two folks who are part of an organization that is working really hard to be uh, an outpost of beauty and goodness in the world. And um, so I, I, I tell folks, um, you know, following Jesus is really hard to do. At least it is for me. I'm, I'm often not very good at it. And I'm, uh, but, but the brain can do a lot of really hard things for a long time, as long as it doesn't have to do it by itself. And so I'm grateful to be in a conversation with two people who know what it means to run hard after our Lord. And, uh, when we're not by ourselves in that venture, um, uh, living water begins to like show up in all kinds of unexpected places. So thank you for having me. It's again, it's, it's humbling. It's, it's a joy. It's a delight. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, if we haven't made it weird yet, um, we are also <laughs> just continuously. <laughs> and if anybody's been listening to us long enough, they know we actually did a podcast series on um, your book, Soul of Shame. Um, and you recently, uh, when we found out you were uh, that you did a podcast, we were so ex so excited. Um, and I'll just tell our listeners too. So it's called Being Known with um, Kurt Thompson and Pepper Sweeney, right? Right. That's right. Okay. That's right. And because you just go pepper, right? Like that, like you have to know like, <laughs> that's it. And um, who is also fantastic. Um, and I'll be honest with you, you know, we're not going to rehash your podcast because why? Right. And so you did it perfect the first time. So for if, if anybody wants to stop now, and I probably would never say this for anything else, go back, <laughs> listen to that whole series. And this is not something I will say with your podcast, it's so incredible, but it is not something you can do while you're like wandering around the store. Like you really need to be in a place where you can mm -hmm. hear it. Um, a lot of our staff, my husband, like he's even said, he's like, I've got to go while I'm on like a run so I can hear it and absorb it. And it just brings out such incredible thought provoking things, just emotions. It's just, 
it's just so good. And so you can pause, go listen to all of those and then come back um, if you would like. Um, and you also have two incredible books out um, right now. And I know a new one to come. So we get to talk about that. But The Anatomy of the Soul and the Soul of Shame, both of which we use in our residential programs. Um, and ultimately, these books explore how um, the physical, the you know, just neurology, neuroscience, all of that relates to the ways that we experience relationships, how we experience emotions, like, you know, and, and kind of what the partnering, if you will, with like shame or joy and how that physically can affect us. Um, and then especially how we experience our own stories. Um, and what we're going to get into today, too, of just our longings and desires for spiritual connection with God um, and just really the ultimate goal and, and what, you know, we want here at Mercy is to live like a fully integrated life with God. And, and from us, we are so grateful because, you know, we can't do what we do on our own. And it takes these kinds of works that we can hand, a, you know, a book, Anatomy of a Soul to a resident, and it just illuminates to them like, oh, that's how that works, you know, and, and not just from an education standpoint, but truly being able to understand why we have to partner with health, you know, and um, to in, intentionally um, heal. Uh, you know, it doesn't just happen to us. Um, and so the new book, though, is called The Soul of Desire and Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty and Community. And so I would love to start, frankly, just with the title of that. And and like you mentioned, you know, we don't really talk about beauty. And, and honestly, your podcast, the one on on beauty was in longing was so incredible. And I'll add some thoughts I had to it. And hopefully you're going to be like, Brooke, that was the greatest thing ever. That's exactly what I meant. If you're not though, it's okay. <laughs> I don't get my feelings hurt. So it's fine. Um, and if I do, no one will know. Uh, and so anyway, <laughs> for, the, for the soul of desire, um, could you just unpack for us a little bit, like what it means that we are people of desire? Right. One of the things that really uh, struck me in the course of coming to the end of writing the first book uh, was the role that shame played. And then in the middle of writing and coming to the end of writing this book on shame, you come to discover that, you know, what what is it that shame is like, if shame is this cancer uh, in the way that we operate, like what is what is the material that it's feeding off of? What is it that it's actually hijacking in some respects? What's, you know, it, it, in, in seeing patients, you, shame shows up quickly in the room. You, like you see it almost immediately. And, you know, it happens in trauma. It happens in all, all kinds of settings. But if it's so effective, it's kind of like if the fire is burning, like what's the material that it has to burn? Like what is it that's actually going on? And, you know, you you come, when you, when I, 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 again, I, I, I think we we just everything you need to know about human beings you can read about in the first eleven chapters of Genesis, the first ten chapters of Genesis, and this this hard deck that tells us about who we are as people, what we were designed for, who what we were destined for, and how we find ways to like undo all that and to screw that up and you know do what we do. And in that, in those opening chapters, you, you see in the first chapter of Genesis, when you, when you hear God say it was good, the Hebrew for it was good was this, when he's making this statement, this isn't just some throwaway statement of, you know, some objective, like this is a God who is making stuff because he longs to make stuff. And then we get to the end of the first chapter and we hear that God's going to make us in his, in his image. And I think one of the, you know, it's easy for us to rightly, I think, we imagine that being in his image, are, we are people who are thoughtful. We are people who have working minds. We think about things. We plan things. We have choice. We have a sense of morality. All those kinds of things that the philosophers have taught us about. But another additional way that we are like God in his image is that in the same way that, I mean, this is what like the, the Genesis writers, writer is such a great writer. He doesn't explain everything. He just shows us things. And he shows us a God, part of whose image is a God of longing, a God of desire, and a God who makes things. And part of our being in God's image is that we are also people of desire. We are people of great longing. And 
as I talk about in the book, this longing shows up even developmentally, right? We long for, first of all, just physical appetites, right? I long for breath when I come out of the womb. I long for food. I long for shelter. I long for these kinds of fundamental things that will enable me to survive. I long for this. I don't just like, oh, let me think if I need some oxygen. Yeah, I guess I'll have some today. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like, no, I, 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 there's a certain, like, I long for this. But as we develop further, we, we see that what the baby really longs for is mom's gaze. The baby longs for dad's voice. Now, at two days or six weeks or six months, the baby doesn't cognitively know that this is what it's longing for. But attachment studies would demonstrate that this is exactly what this baby's looking for. The baby's looking for someone looking for her. The baby's looking for someone looking for him. This said, like, I long to be seen. I long to be known. And we, we see this echoed in, in Paul's language, this notion of the person who loves God is known by God. The, to, to, to be loved is not just a feeling of that I get. To be loved is my awareness that you are aware of all there is of me that is to be aware of, and spe- especially the stuff that I hate the most, and you still want to stay in the room with me. Now, that is love. This is Good Friday, right? This is God coming in his fullness and letting us kill him because he so wants to be with us, because he sees something that we don't see, and that's resurrection that's coming on Easter. But we don't stop there. We don't stop with that longing to be known, because we see further in this creation account that to be known by God is to partner with him, to go on and continue to be more like God, and that is in how we make things. We are known in order to create, and we don't want to create mediocrity. We want things that are gorgeous. We want things to be beautiful. We don't wake up and say, I really hope that by the end of the day, my life's actually more mediocre than it was when I started. I don't like that. That's not what I don't want that. I want beauty and goodness in their fullness. Now, I find all kinds of ways not to do that. And this is where shame gets involved in this project. And like we would say, look, look, evil, evil is the second smartest force on the planet. And it sees beauty coming and it is anathema to evil and it will do whatever it can to undo it, to devour it, as C.S. Lewis would talk about, as, as Peter talks about, right? Satan is this lion roaring, looking for someone to devour. And so the this this next book is really... Its first, its first principle, its first idea is this notion is just acknowledging that we are people of desire, that we are people of longing. And of course, this makes us nervous to acknowledge this because, you know, I, like I can think of a ton of desires that I want that are not very godly, just to say it, right? I'm a, like, like I'm a professional sinner. I'm not just, a, I'm not, I'm, I am not, I'm not a second or third string sinner. Like I'm a first string sinner. <laughs> and so- People get nervous when we say about desire because like there's all kinds of things that come to mind about how that is. And and so we then will, you know, our our desires get hijacked and they get ruined and they get bent. And so we put them underground. We bury them, we deny them, we swallow them. But like the wellspring of water coming up from underneath the, you know, the surface of the earth, like we can't stop it. And so if I don't acknowledge my desire, it's going to show up someplace. And then that desire to create beauty, which we can talk more about in a moment. But anyway, that's that's long-winded reflection to your first question. Yes. Um, I, I have to say that even just hearing what you just shared and, and listening to your podcast, I'm only uh, days away from giving birth to our second child and just thinking. Through, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. days. We, we, we snuck this in. I was so I was so glad to get to be part of this. Um, so much of what you've shared, I could just say to our listeners, man, if you, if you are a parent, I mean, it's, it's fantastic for everyone, no matter what season of life you're in, but man, I have just learned so, so much about truly just the heart of parenting and what my children, how they are developing and what they are longing for, even out of the womb. I mean, that has been, that's brought me to tears multiple times. Uh, just, just realizing, um, I mean, truly just kind of the weight of what I carry in the lives of children and how they develop in these areas. And it's been, it's, it's really just been inspirational. So um, you've already gone there this morning. <laughs> like, oh boy. 
I'm gonna have to, the pregnant woman over here is gonna get emotional, but um, I just, that's just been so helpful. And, you know, I don't know, I, I know that you've already shared quite a bit in this regard already. Um, the subtitle of your book is Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. Is there anything else that you would um, speak to as far as just what longing has to do with beauty? I know you've already kind of hit on that some. Is there anything else you would? Well, I, I think in, in some respects, it's kind of like asking, you know, why are we bipeds? Why aren't we just monopods that just hop along? You know, I'm thinking of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader and Lewis's monopods that just jump, you know, okay, it is. It's pretty, it's a pretty remarkable book. <laughs> it's my book. favorite book. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Right, and um, and, and so we, we, we might say, uh uh, you know, why are we hungry? Well, we're hungry because we don't want to say, well, they're hungry because there's food. Like with the, we, we get the sense that if we're hungry, there's something about our hunger that tells us that eating is a good thing. And when we talk about longing, like it, we, we, we have experiences in which we, uh, you know, it's the standard fare of like, you come upon a sunset and it stops you in your tracks and you couldn't make this. You, it, 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 it doesn't force itself upon you, but it, it gives itself to you, right? I can't control this. I'm not in charge of this. And it stops me in my tracks. And then immediately I find myself noticing that the sun is going down. And I'm like, no. I'm like, you want, you want to stop the earth from turning. And I just want to stay in this moment. Like, I know I, know, I, I know I have to go home and put my kids to bed, but no. I just want to stay in this moment. And the fact that we recognize this and the fact that when it starts to literally set and then it becomes dark and we, we sense that sense of, oh, oh wasn't that wonderful? But, oh, I, I, you know, we, we sense this in our lives. And it then doesn't take much for us to have similar kinds of experiences, not just with the natural world, or not just with natural experiences that we have in, in nature or sometimes in worship, but also with the things that human beings create. And this also begins in childhood, right? When the three-year-old runs into the room with her masterpiece and says, Daddy, Mommy, look what I made for you. And, and of course, there is this sense of, and we, we, I talk about this in the book, that this sense of longing to make and to make beauty, but that that beauty in and of itself, it doesn't just stand alone. It Like I bring it to mom. It is a thing that I want to show somebody. Like I want somebody to see the sunset. I want somebody to be with me. And so beauty also necessarily facilitates the possibility of our being known. It draws us into a common space in which we are longing to be even more deeply known and we have this beauty in common. And this longing then that is housed first in physical appetites, right? Basic stuff, food, shelter, water, so forth, and sleep. I then draws to this sense of longing to be known, but then we, we discover some things, right? We discover that like, I, I discover that I'm curious about the world and I discover that I make things like you can't, you can't keep little boys from turning sticks into guns. Like, I mean, I mean, you know, gun control, not that's a whole other topic, right? But I mean, you, you, this whole notion of like, we're going to play these things. We're going to make the mud pies. We are going to, we're going to get the crayons and we're going to do something. You don't have to teach kids to do this. Now you can facilitate that, you can shepherd that, you can steward that in them, you can grow that like we want. And this is what education again becomes about, right? Education in many respects is how is it that I then discover God's world and my place in it? It's the theme of the Christian school that our kids attended. Discovering God's world and your place in it in the sense that I'm discovering. Why? Like, but I don't, I, the discovery of things, <gasps> I've discovered it is because the thing is beautiful. If the thing is amazing, whatever the thing is, if it's if it's a mathematical equation that somebody like Einstein used to say, long before the numbers ever came to him, there were pictures in his mind. He saw things, right? He discovers there's something that captures our attention that is harmonious with it, is speaking to this longing. Like, so we have this longing that we're made for, and we have this beauty that is in the world that we are in conversation with. 
And then we recognize further that the beauty that I'm in conversation with at first, that I then want to go on to create, is also the beauty that I long to become. And this is, this is you know, I mean, the new heaven and, new, and the new earth, this, this notion that like when, when, our bad, when our good friends, when our spouses, when our children look at us and they see us seeing them as objects of beauty, that is what pulls out of them their awareness that like, oh my gosh, this is what it means for me to be me. It's like when Lewis talks about in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, and he describes what it's like for a dog to enjoy the delight of its master. There's nothing that a dog enjoys more than the dog sensing the master's delight in the dog. This That the master is just delighted that the dog is there. And this sense that the dog senses, like imagine that's within human terms, that we are becoming objects of beauty to God. And this is what we are called then to create in the world. And there's more to say about this because whenever we talk about beauty, usually uh, we talk about it as a luxury, right? We, it's something that we have to put up with, right? I mean, we have to, we, we'll, we'll get to beauty once we, put, once we take care of everything else in the world. But what our lives and the brain development would tell us is that beauty is actually as important as the water we drink, as the air that we breathe. And evil is hell-bent on seeing to it that we don't ever imagine. Mercy Multiplied exists to provide opportunities for all to experience God's unconditional love, forgiveness, and life-transforming power. Our residential program is for women ages 13 to 32, and our outpatient services are for women ages 13 and older. Both programs are voluntary, biblically based, and completely free of charge. Our goal is to help women in our programs permanently stop destructive cycles, discover purposes for their lives, and experience God's unconditional love, forgiveness, and life-transforming power. If you or someone you know would like to apply to one of our programs or you'd simply like to find out more information, you can start by heading to our website at mercymultiplied.com. So one of the things, so many things, <laughs> yeah, but, but what I love, and before I ask my question, I will just say this, like, um, you know, when we teach our workshops, one of the things that I'm, I'm really passionate about is that we take these words that the world has manipulated um, back, like submission, obedience, you know, what you're talking about, longing and desire and beauty, like how many people that, you know, self-identified Christians forever would read that and be like, well, what does that mean? As if like longing and desire are these negative things. And I'm just, I think it's just so important that we take them, read, you know, actually define what they are and, and, and really just take that back, you know, this idea of submission. And, you know, this is what we also teach to our residents, right? Like, submission is such a beautiful thing in the healthy, safe context, right? But your body, if you've been surviving, is not interested. Your brain is like, yeah, no, I'm good. And so we've got to start with belief and that renewing the mind and actually engaging in this for your for your brain to actually believe this is a safe thing, you know. And and sometimes we, you know, forget that process. Like it it's it's been so used to being one way, thinking one way, doing one way, and to then shift it you know, cause we'll have that revelation, right. Or how many of us have just like heard something from the Lord and we're like, I will never forget that. And solid 72 hours later, we're like, what was that thing? It was so life-changing. Didn't yes. write it down. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, or whatever it is, because the, the putting it into practice part, right. That, that, Paul talks about, we didn't, we don't quite get there. So we'll have that moment of beauty, you know, of the sunset. And then we don't kind of let it sit with us and carry us through to the next thing. Um, and so I would just really love if you would talk about how it is that we live so much um, of our lives kind of dominantly out of this left hemisphere of our brains. Um, and what does that have to do with kind of how we approach our lives um, as problems to be solved rather than, than artifacts of beauty? Um, 
And I'll wait for my other thing because I don't want to throw it off. But yeah, if you would just speak about that piece of it, I would, uh, that would be amazing. So we would say that here, here is this notion of God's that he's going to create a world in which people are going to be partner with him in creating beauty and goodness on the, in the process of being known by each other deeply. And that, that process is going to feed the, the, the two parts, right? I'm going to be known create beauty, the beauty facilitates being known, the whole thing just continues to expand. And then evil and trauma and violence and shame get involved in the game. And everything goes to hell in a handbasket. And so instead of uh, creating beauty, I'm only primarily solving problems because that's primarily how I see myself to be. It's not just that I see the world that way first. I see the world through the lens of how I first understand myself to be. This is attachment research as well. And so it becomes really difficult for me to imagine beauty. And instead, beauty becomes something that I devour. It becomes something I consume. It becomes something that I want to clutch, that I want to hold, that I want to hang on to. I don't just want to go visit the Van Gogh in the museum. I want the Van Gogh in my house. I don't just want to see the beauty of the woman that I'm with. I want to devour it. I want to devour her. And so lust becomes this engine that is really about devouring because all of that is an attempt on my part to regulate my own internal shame mechanism. All this stuff that's going on outside of me is a function. That's what Jesus says. Like the words that come out of us come from inside, come from what's going on inside. What I do, what looking upon a woman, looking upon, I'm going to own something instead of just creating it, allowing it. To be present, we say that one of the, uh, in in the book uh, I, I say beauty. One one of the and there are many people who've written many lovely, beautiful things about the notion of beauty. There are three words in in this book that I that I offer to the reader, and that is that beauty is something of wonder, like it wonder, like it captures us. It's welcoming, right? It, it welcomes us to itself. It doesn't force us to come. We can come or we not come, and it leads us to worship, ultimately but not worship of the object itself. It's always pointing to something else. And in my shame and trauma, the violence that has been done to me or that I've been doing to myself in my own mind, um, those three words of wonder, welcome, and worship get turned on their head. And so instead, we have all the world that we have. And so then what ends up happening is my, my longings end up being things that mostly I'm using to try to cope with my shame and my trauma. I don't, and, and so I, I, I understand and sense and feel in my very body, the world being a problem to solve because I understand myself to be this. I'm a problem to solve. I am a problem to walking around with this. And that, and that sense isn't just something that shows up on occasion when I get stressed. No, it's the undercurrent of my life. And it is, it shows up in these moments because, you know, the undercurrent has access to an opening and the water comes forth and it shows this is, this is what Kurt really thinks, but not just in this moment, because this is who I am. I'm a person who believes that I'm a problem to be solved. And so I then respond to that deep conviction. You know, I, um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, 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 I've shared this publicly before. Um, I, uh, was the fourth of four sons and, but I came when my brothers were 18, 16, and 11 when I was born and uh, my oldest brother left for college and I came the week, the next week. And like, so he comes home at Thanksgiving break and I'm like, what's this? Right. I mean, like, who's, who's this thing? What is this thing doing here? And so in, in many respects, when my mother, who was 44 when I was born in 1962, uh, it is not a joyful thing to be pregnant at age 44 in 1962. It is an anxiety-provoking thing. And of course, like I heard these stories later that people were like wondering, like, Betty, Lewis, like, what, well, like, what were you thinking? Well, we know what you were doing, but like, what were you thinking? Right? How, how could you, like, there's a certain embarrassment. And so one of the things, and if you've, uh, you know, Mark uh, Wallen has this beautiful book called I Didn't Start With You on epigenetics and generational 
uh, you know, anxieties and traumas that are passed down. And, you know, what I wasn't aware of at the time was that before I was an object of joy, before I was a source of joy for my parents, I was a source of anxiety. And, you know, this is, this is not throwing them under the bus. It's not their fault. I mean, but, but like if it, it, it's just, it's the way it is. And this is, this is my story. And so I learned that like, I actually walk around and to this day at age 58, there are parts of me that still wrestle with this. I walk around assuming that I'm before I'm anything else, I'm going to be a source of anxiety for you. I'm going to be a source of distress for you. Like I'm not confident that you're going to really want me in the room. And so the notion that I would see my life as possibly being a source of beauty, like is this, like it's not where it begins for me. And I then load that on top of the things that I then do. I can do things in the world, but I'm always wondering, is it going to be good enough? Is it going to be enough for people to like it and then want me to be in the room? Or is it going to be just one more reason for why people wouldn't want me to be in the room? If that makes sense. So, so my, at the same time that I long to be seen and known and wanted to be in the room, there is this shame matrix that is like, that has tentacled itself around the mind neural networks from the time, even before I was born that is in competition with that, that causes me to doubt that, that causes me to need to know that I'm perfectly perfect in order to make sure that you will want me to be around. And so in this way, longing gets hijacked. I, we, we more dominantly see ourselves as problems. And then when it comes to like, you, we hear the good news, we hear Jesus coming and he, he you know, his first words to John's, the first words of Jesus in John's gospel, what do you want? first words to John's disciples. What do you want? And I'm like, I would of course be like, I'm worried, right? Like, well, I don't know. Well, could you tell me what the right answer to this question is so that I don't screw this up? Am I, am I, I didn't know that I was allowed to ask this, to answer that question. I didn't know that God would be interested in asking that question. I thought he would be here to tell me what I should want, what I'm supposed to want, what I'm supposed to do about all the, all the things that make us nervous about desire and longing. And here we have Jesus taking it very seriously and saying, what do you want? And I'm going to say, well, I'm, I, I don't know. Like the disciples, they said, well, where are you staying? This is, this is their answer to him, right? This is John's answer. I'm like, well, and maybe this is the right way you defer to a rabbi and so forth. Like you don't want to be too presumptuous. Maybe that's the way they do it. But at the same time, you're like, I'm asking you a direct question. What do you want? I'm wondering if, you know, I was just thinking the other day about how, um, and actually for our listeners to know, um, Kurt was so generous and kind before we even started recording, just encouraging Brooke and myself just about how the work that we're doing isn't just solving problems. And that, that was, I mean, that like ministered to my heart this morning, honestly, just reimagining even what it is that I'm doing every day when I come in to work. And I was just even thinking the other day about how it's funny because, you know, we do our work and I was just in, what I do here at Mercy, I was just thinking, man, I see fruit from my work, or I see these moments of beauty as you would describe. It's, it's, it's like it's never enough. It, it truly is like being inside of me. I'm like, things have even just been happening in the last few weeks here that I'm like, this is stuff I dreamed that would happen from what we do here at Mercy. And it's like, it's not enough. Like, I just can't get enough of it. It's like, it, it's nice for a moment, but then it's like back to it. And it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if that thing in us, and it doesn't have to just be related to work, but it's truly like the sunset. I think about when I go to the mountains, I'm like, I can't, it's like, I just want to, I just want to eat this and never let it go. And it's like, it just, you can't ever get enough of the good. And so I'm, I'm wondering if that is exactly why, because of what you've described. The feeling that I have that I'm, you know, the, the grief of losing the sunset. I mean, grief might sound like, Kurt, it's a sunset. Like, you'll see one tomorrow. Like, grief, no. It's it's emblematic of loss of any kind. That we are people, in, in the in the book, I we, we talk about we are people of desire and we are people of grief. And we are both of these things simultaneously on this side of the Perugia, on this side of the fullness of the new heaven and the new earth. We are people of desire and we are people of grief. And part of how it is that I feel this 
longing of loss in the way that I do when I lose the sunset, when I lose a brother to cancer, when I lose, when we lose anything is like it's echoes of the curse, right? It's in, in, in Christian anthropology, we would say this is, this is, this, this is Jesus weeping at Lazarus tomb. He's not just weeping about Lazarus' death because Jesus, it would appear, knows what he's about to do. But he's weeping at all the grief, the grief from Mary and Martha that they came to him with, the grief of those around because he knows where he's going to. He, like, he's going to raise this cat from the dead and in a week they're going to kill him. Like who does that? We do. I do. And so that, that, and so this is where we're, we're kind of jumping a bit, but this is where the whole notion of community plays such a huge role. And we go back to the Genesis account. It's not good for man to be alone. And, you know, one, one of the vehicles that I use in the book to help the readers kind of become familiar with what we're talking about we use uh, the work in these, what we call confessional communities. Some might call them group therapy by any other name, but more explicitly for us, there are certain things that we do in these, in these groups that are unique, I think. And we really do believe that it is in the context of this community, in the body of Jesus, where when we hold our longing and our grief together, Beauty is what emerges. Beauty is what emerges in the very fact that even though this person comes back and they're telling the same story about their marriage that is languishing and has been languishing for 20 years, but they're not leaving it. They're continuing to work on it and so forth and so on. And of course, they come back and say, like, I don't think you guys want to keep hearing this story. And of course, everybody says, no, we need to keep hearing the story because everybody in that room, everybody who's listening to this podcast has a part of our story that we're sure that people are going to get tired of listening to because it's not yet in its fullness. There's some part of my story that represents the sun going down. It represents, I can't get this right. I, 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 I've got to get back after it. But it is in that space where even in my grief, I look across the room and I see you coming for me. In that moment, even this grief that I've been talking with you about for three years, and you just keep coming for me, it actually transforms my experience in my own brain of the grief that I'm talking with you about. Because now I know that even though I have this thing in my life, this medical condition, this history of my parents, this challenge with my marriage, this thing at my job, this, this whatever these things are that are the griefs that we carry, I bring it into this space. And now I begin to anticipate that when I come to this space, I'm going to see Brooke and Melanie coming to find me. And it changes everything about how I'm experiencing the grief that I do have. And so, so much where I, in the Old Testament, we hear, do not be afraid for I am with you. And it's not like, oh, I'm with you like my cell phone happens to be with me in the same room that I'm occupying. It's no, it's the gaze of Jesus gazing at us as we gaze at him. And that gaze is ever present. And that is the gaze that is looking at us, not just as objects of beauty, but also objects of beauty who are objects of brokenness. Okay. This is the thing I've been, <laughs> I love that you said this because this is the moment. No, I, um, I, so what I've actually talked about this a lot lately and on the podcast and, um, I have a small private practice and this has kind of been the theme and I don't know if the Lord does this with you, but basically anyone I work with is really just him talking to me, um, about <laughs> this, like the areas of growth. And, um, but one of the things, uh, that's been huge, just went through really hard season aside from pandemic aside. Um, and, what the Lord really taught me and just kind of hit me with is that it, it, you have to grieve and be grateful at the same time. And that is how your heart doesn't get crushed. That's what he was saying to me. And, and there was just a shift, like my circumstances didn't change, 
but I could all of a sudden just these small things. And it was just over and over. What am I grateful for? And not to disqualify the hurt, not to be like, I'm going to pretend this isn't happening, you know, and kind of, you know, whatever my favorite thing is when you're like, you know, gosh, I've got the flu and somebody's like, well, at least it's not cancer. And you're like, okay, well, glad we're comparing those things. Um, you know, thanks a lot. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I'm, I shouldn't, because there are other terrible things. I cannot feel what I'm supposed to feel. Right. Um, you know, right. and so it's just been this consistent theme and it's been so life-changing. And so when I was listening to the podcast and hearing you talk about beauty, that's what I was like, that's the thing. That's what he's been saying. You know, we can't wait to get there. It has to exist along the way or you are getting crushed. You're And then you're missing it because then you get there and you had no idea how to enjoy it to begin with. So you get to this thing and you're like, I'm supposed to know what to do with this, but I, I don't because I didn't learn how to engage with it along the way or be known along the way or be in healthy relationships along the way. You know, we want, well, when I'm, cause somebody talked about like, well, what if God just heals somebody immediately? And I was like, sure, that can happen, right? Immediately delivered from addiction. You still have to figure out how to function as a healthy, free person. That is an, that is an education. We don't know. There's a lot of people that they get free, but they don't know how to hold on to it and engage with it and continue to function in it. You know, and the only way we do that is by knowing other healthy people and other people who can, can continuously stay there, like you're saying, with us in our story that we are kind of members with, you know, that we're, you know, connected to in this way. Um, and so I just right here, I see you're nodding your head. The audience doesn't know, but I, you are agreeing with me, correct? Yeah. <laughs> Great. That's I, what I just yeah, need yes. everyone to know. <laughs> Brooke, everything that you say is true. Everything you say is right. Everything, even everything, every, everything you've ever said, everything you're everything ever going to say. <laughs> I agree with everything that Brooke says. Oh, gosh. Kurt Thompson. Yeah. No, I'm going to play this every day. Um, Your husband in particular. Yes. Yeah. He would literally say, no, yeah. That's what we tell her. Uh, Yeah. Sure, sure. (laughs) Sounds good. Um, No, but I just... uh, I don't know. Again, just so excited. And I just love how he's... he's, I, I just... When I hear and see him telling all different people and Melanie's had these same experiences in her life. It's like, Oh, God's doing something good. And it's going to move across his people, you know, that it's not just one person sharing it, that we're all going to kind of collectively understand. And he's driving us to, to what you're talking about in your books and in your new book coming up. Exactly. How would you say in light of the work that you're doing in light of the book, um, how do you see grief, not as an enemy to run away from, but as something to and that is part of the beauty. Yeah. I would think of this along two or three rails. One, I would hear, uh, I, I would I would begin with Jesus' question again, what do you want, right? This is a God who, this, and, and that, that question echoes Genesis 3. Where are you, right? This is God's question to Adam in Genesis 3. Where are you? Jesus comes along in John one and says, what do you want? These are, they're, they're similar questions. There is, this is a God who wants to hear from us the truth about what is really true about who we are. And the Hebrews gave us the answers and they put them in the Psalter, right? The Psalms. It's like, it's 150 poems and songs in which we are going to express who we are to a God that we believe can take it. And so we don't, we don't write Psalm 150 without Psalm 1, without also Psalm 137, right? Where is this rage against the Babylonians and we can't wait till their little ones are being crushed against the rocks. And of course, like, like who, like, that's, mm, I'm not supposed to be doing that. Yes. This is a God who says, look, in order for me to redeem all of you, I need you to have a conversation with me about all of you about all that is true about who we are. And we are people of grief. This is part of the curse. Jesus wasn't weeping every second of every day, but we have record that he wept on several occasions. And so we know that he's carrying this with him as he also carries great hope 
and great confidence. These are not mutually exclusive things. You know, what's difficult for us is, in, in some respects too, is that, you know, we live in a world, in, in, in some respects, uh, it, it is, in, in its basic form, is no different than when the Bible was written from 4,000 years ago to 2,000 years ago. And that is that we are a people who want things done quickly. I want my problems resolved quickly. I, I want my packages delivered yesterday before I even order them. I, all, all the things, right? I, I, and, 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 you know, and, and social media and technology, you know, I'm not a Luddite. I, I, I don't, it's not a bad thing, but it, 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 it takes us into places that are not, we, we allow it to take us to places that are not helpful for us. And one of those things, one of those places it takes us is this uh, sense of like, immediacy. Like I no longer know, I no longer know how to, uh, you know, delay gratification. I, I, I am, I'm being actively, I actively practice not being able to do that. And so when it comes to my grief, I'd like to know that my grief is expressed. If I, if I need to express it, okay, fine. Today I'll express it to you. And then can we please be done with this? As opposed to recognizing, no, no, no. We are people of longing and we are people of grief. It's who we are. It's not just what you do. And so it's going to be important to know that it's, it's going to be with me always. It may show up in certain moments more particularly and more strongly, but it's never going to go away. You know, I love this where this is, this is Second uh, Corinthians uh, 4, right? Where Paul writes and says like, so we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, right? It, it is like we are people of grief. Like I'm dying. I'm a dying man. Nobody gets out alive. I'm a dying man, and I'm looking for ways to pretend that that's not true. I'm I'm looking for all kinds of ways coping to, to to cheat death. I want to keep the sunset right where it is. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make it like, and I'm gonna, and if I have to grieve, I'm gonna make it happen, and we're gonna be done. But instead. Both the creation of beauty is a long obedience in the same direction, right? If we're, you know, I mean, Mozart was a bit of an aberrance, right? But I mean, like when you get people who are, who are like creating great symphonies, it takes a long time to do this. You know, great pianists take a long time to practice their trade. If we're going to be professional human beings... It's going to take a long time for us to get comfortable with what it means for us to be really good at that. And to be really good at that means I, it does not mean I no longer have grief. It means I, I know how to professionally be with my grief. I know how to be with grief as Jesus. He was a man of sorrows. I, and part of how we do this is we see grief as a doorway to creating beauty. In these confessional communities, one of the most po- some of the most powerful moments that have occurred, some of the most beautiful moments that have occurred, have been in the presence of grief. When someone brings their grief into the room, and twenty or thirty minutes later, their experience in the room has been transformed because other people are coming to find them. And it doesn't mean that their relationship outside the room or whatever it is that they're talking about has changed dramatically, but they are not the same. And beauty emerges so much more amazingly because we never would have expected to have found it here. And so I think about, again, the work that you all are doing. I mean, you're going into hard places. Like you're going into hard places. And you're going because you see the beauty that's waiting now, the places where the people are, where you find them, those folks often don't see it. We didn't see it when God came for us in Jesus. But he didn't come to us as a problem to be solved. He looks at us and says, in all of their brokenness, I see new heaven and earth and it's coming. And there's nothing, not even death is going to get in the way of me pulling this off. So, you know, unfortunately you have other things to do. Um, 
instead of spend your entire day with us. <laughs> so, and you know what? That's probably whatever you have to do today. I just will assume will not be this great. Um, but <laughs> I do. wait, wait, Brooke. Yeah, you, you, as you know, all your words are true, and so it must be the case. That <laughs> right. It must be the case that nothing will be nearly yeah. as enjoyable as this. That's right. No. But on that note, I mean, and, and you know, we've uh, talked about this, but not directly, but but as we wrap up, um, you know, living the way that you were, are talking about is, requires more than just like redefining grief or going, okay, I am a person of grief. So what would be, and, and I know this is in the book, I, I, well, I don't know, I haven't read it, but I'm assuming it is, but, but is there a little bit of kind of just for our listeners, just a practical takeaway of how they can shift into engaging more than just like, oh, oh, it's that. Now what do I do with it kind of thing? Like what would be maybe just a next step uh, other than, of course, get the books, read the books, do the things in the yeah. books, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, there's a couple things. Um, one that I would point people to, and, and then they might find it to be helpful. I wrote uh, a series of essays. It was last year. I wrote a series of essays in response to COVID. And one of those essays was titled Beauty Will Save the World. This is a phrase from one of uh, Dostoevsky's novels. And I, I and so in, in, that, in that essay, uh, which is not too long, uh, there are, I have maybe uh, eight or 12 concrete steps for people to begin to practice incorporating beauty into their life. So uh, these, these are not in order of, 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 of importance, but th- there's some things that I think that are important for us to be able to do. One thing is that it's really helpful and important for us to practice putting ourselves in the path of oncoming beauty on a regular basis. So that means every day, find five minutes to engage beauty. Does that mean, you know, you know it's, it's COVID, we can't get to places and so forth, but it can be outside. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Andy, who, you know, he before he picks up, looks at, touches any device in his home, the first thing he does every morning is he walks outside and he is with nature in some way, shape or form. And he lives in a suburb in Philadelphia. And so, but he goes to, to, a, to a place that reminds him of how, of how nature and God's creation is speaking to him. And so putting ourselves in the path of beauty, whether it's in nature, whether it's listening to what I call a durable piece of music, right? A durable, you know, a piece of music that is likely to be here a hundred years from now, like d- doing that. Um, whether it's viewing a painting, even if it's online, whether uh, you know, so th- these kinds of painting, sculpture, whatever. So it's it's practicing, looking at, presenting yourself to beauty. That's that's one thing. A second thing is the notion of creating beauty. And that is asking the question, in what way am I going to create beauty today? Now, you know, some of our listeners will hear this like, like, I don't paint. I'm not a, like, uh, and, and because we think that the arts, the artists, who, by the way, are the vanguard, right? They are like the priests in this regard. And they show us, they point to things long before we can comprehend them. But what can we do to make things? And moreover, how can we begin to reframe our thinking such that I imagine that in my parenting, I'm actually creating beautiful moments. I'm going to act, but I have to, I actually have to make myself think that I have to practice. How am I going to create beauty? Give me one thing I'm going to do to create beauty today in my parenting. One thing I'm going to do today to create beauty with one of my friends. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to imagine a moment. And if I have a conversation with a friend that is really meaningful, I'm going to stop and say like, oh my gosh, that was a really beautiful moment. Like it really, I like it really captures my attention. And then, or what, or in our marriage, or or in my workplace of work, when we go, like you think, like yeah, but I'm like I'm a software engineer. Like I, I go and like I write code all day. And I want to say, okay, the only reason that we don't imagine beauty there is because we haven't practiced learning how to do it. If you're in that, if you're in that space, if you're in the space of recovering from trauma. It's going to require your having other people in the room with you to help you practice this. So this is the next step. 
The next step is, who are the people with whom you are creating beauty on a regular cadenced basis? Now, I don't, I don't mean that you're all going to the studio together. Now, that might be, that could be part of it. You know, you get your friend and say, like, would you take a painting class with me? That's not a small thing to do. Like, that's important. But it could also mean, I want to begin to understand my story as an artifact of beauty that God is creating. It's not just a thing that's being told. It's not just a thing I have to get through till I get to heaven. No, if heaven gets here, and we emphasize this in the last chapter, I emphasize this in the last chapter of the book, this notion that what we're doing here is we're practicing for heaven. And we have to be practicing because when it gets here, if we're not ready for it, it may crush us. It's going to be that beautiful. I remember... Uh, our family, when our kids were in their teens and we went to the Grand Canyon and we arrived at the Grand Canyon uh, of the evening of a two or three day time that we were going to be there. We arrived around five or six o'clock when the light was getting low and we get to the South Rim and we go up to the South Rim. And I remember to this day, the whole thing was just on fire. And I remember telling my wife, I can barely look at it. It's so, it's almost painful. It's so overwhelming. Like you just can't take that much in. And if we are going to be, and if this is like, and if you think like, look, God has made us just a little lower than the angels. God looks at the Grand Canyon and then looks at you and says like the Grand Canyon can't even compare to what you're going to be like. And if I'm not practicing for that, what will it be like when it gets here? And so we practice this in community. We practice this by telling our stories to others, including the brokenness of our story, anticipating that the Holy Spirit's work in so doing is creating beauty in those very moments of brokenness. When I just even think about the things that I know are coming for the rest of my day, like just reframes, everything. it completely reframes everything and breathes life into it and makes it meaningful. Um, so I'm just imagining what would it be like every day to approach life that. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited to implement, I mean, that, you know, we are very, very big here on this podcast about making sure that we leave people with just really, like, what do I do with this? This is great. This is, but it's, it can be lofty. And so what do I do with that? And I think just I know those three things for me um, has helped put this into context of daily life. Um, I'm actually, I would love to know, Kurt, where would people be able to find the essays that you said you wrote? Yeah, you can find the essays on my website. It's kurtthompsonmd.com. And uh, if you, yeah, you go to, there's a, button for podcasts and, and blog. Okay. And you can, you can find it, you can find it there under the blog section. That's great. That's great. For yeah. our listeners, I'll, we'll be sure that we put those in the show notes as well as links to all the other things, the books, the podcast, all of it. Um, we for sure would just sit here and talk with you for the entire workday if we could. Um, and we are truly just so honored and grateful that you would give this time to us, to our listeners um, it has been impactful for me. Um, and I know there's no, no doubt in my mind that anyone who listens to this will be all over your podcast and your website, getting everything that you've ever done. So I want to make sure that people know, um, Dr. Kurt Thompson's podcast is called Being Known. Um, I know that Brooke and I can both testify. I mean, you just can't get enough of it. And, um, and I cannot wait for the new book to come out, um, Soul of Desire, but also The Anatomy of the Soul, Soul of Shame. Your previous books are, um, are just fantastic. I know that we use them in our program, recommend them to everyone we know. And um, so we'll be very, very excited and looking out for the new one coming out this fall. And then, as you said, KurtThompsonMD.com. Um, I was on it the other day. I was like, oh my goodness, there's more. There's more resources. There's even more here. So I don't know how I missed those essays, but I sure will be going on to check those out as well. Um, so again, we are 
so, so grateful and um, just really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And as I said, uh, you know, I, um, it's, it's really humbling. Uh, and I'm, I'm just so honored to be able to speak with people who are doing such literally hard and beautiful work. So thank you for all the work that you're doing on behalf of so many um, in, um, in this journey of creating beauty in really hard places. Yes. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we'll be looking forward uh, to hopefully seeing you all next week. Thank you so much. Have a good day. We're so glad you joined us today. We'd love for you to head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. You can also find previous episodes there. Mercy Multiplied is a nonprofit organization completely funded by our donors. We're incredibly grateful and couldn't do what we do without them. If you want to find out more how you can partner with us financially, head over to mercymultiplied.com.